Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. To set up where we're going today, I want to begin with an observation about human nature. Now, this isn't really a religious thing. It's just a kind of a natural thing. It's just uh, it's just a thing. Uh, maybe it's something that you've experienced, but you haven't really been able to put words to it yet. And that is this. It is human nature to resist things we can't control or don't understand. Right? That's, that's just human nature. That's natural. It's just natural. It's natural. It's true of all of us to naturally resist things that we can't control and things that we don't understand. Now, the truth of the matter is we all want to be open-minded. In fact, some of us, or some of you, I don't know where the finger's pointing exactly, but some of us pride ourselves on being open-minded, right? We pride ourselves on being open-minded, but at the same time, we want to make sense of the world. We want to make sense of the world. We want to make sense of the world around us. We want the world to make sense. So whether you are a Christian or not, or a believer or not, a religious person or non-religious person, whatever it is, your worldview actually enables you to make sense of the world as you experience it, okay? So how you see the world helps you to make sense of it how you experience it. Now, the, your worldview, as you know it, is your framework, and when your framework is challenged, we naturally, we pull the drawbridge up, we cross our arms, we resort back to just personal uh, conversations and personal talking points because we get uncomfortable when our framework, when our worldview is challenged. And uh, this morning, I, I, I was thinking about this. You might feel like I'm pointing fingers, but I'm not. I am talking to me, too. This is, it's human nature. It explains why many of us, and perhaps, and maybe you remember this, maybe you don't, but maybe when you went off to high school or college and for the first time you kind of experienced world, the world in a different way, in a different framework, you came home to mom and dad and you started telling mom and dad some of the new theology you've met and how they are and what they think and what they believe and new ideologies and new theologies and new ideas. And what did your parents do? Probably a lot of them, not all of them, but most of them. They resist that, right? They're like, whoa, no, I don't like this. I don't like that. You're, you're messing with my framework, my worldview. Now I have a daughter who has made it through high school and is now in college. And I get it and I understand. So maybe as parents, even as now your younger children are, are going through that and they have new friends and new ideologies and theologies and, and ideas, we naturally resist that, right? We naturally push away from that. We have a resistance to new things, new ideas, new ways of thinking, perhaps things that are problematic, right? I remember, I remember going off to college, and all of a sudden, I'm presented with a, a world that I'd never seen before, a world that I'd never experienced before. They start even questioning in some of my classes the reliability of the Scripture, I've never seen that before. And when you bring that back to someone who has a framework, their worldview, they naturally resist that because we naturally, it's human nature to naturally resist what we don't understand or what we can't control. So let's be honest. Even as I say this, some of you have already crossed your arms and you feel like I'm setting you up to, to challenge you to give up something big. And that's not the point this morning. That's not the plan this morning because it's just human nature to try to resist and try to control those things, especially when it conflicts with something old or something comfortable, right? 
especially when it starts to dabble in that. That's why I think it's really important for people to travel the world. You know, I think that that should be mandatory as humans, those that can afford it, that can somehow get away with it. I think it's important that you travel the world. Let me tell you something. You go with me to Haiti, and let me take you to uh, Cabaret, or actually past Cabaret, up the mountain to the village where I met my daughter, Jenica, which is not there anymore because it's been washed away by the flood, but they moved it into the town. Let me take you into Haiti to the marketplace, okay? I took a team a few years ago to Haiti to the marketplace, and as we're walking through the marketplace, I had to escort several of those team members, one of which uh, attends our church, and I won't mention her name, but she's our women's director, and it rhymes with Ariana. Uh, but anyway, I had to <laughs> escort, them, escort them out of the marketplace because they were so sick at their stomach because they're selling fish that has been cut and sliced open and laying out on a metal table in the sun, and it's been there for a day, two days in the sun, flies all over it. So if you can imagine the smell, right? Do you need me to paint you any more pictures? Okay, just, just making sure you're with me here. But what I'm saying is when you go and see different parts of the world, different areas of the world, it opens your eyes to your worldview. It's important that we travel and we read because we can get stuck in our little corner of the world. And when you get stuck in your little corner of the world, that corner is limiting, okay? It is very limiting. It limits how you interpret events. And worst of all, it limits how we see and evaluate people. But that is not your fault because did I mention that it is human nature to resist things that we don't understand and we can't control. So it's not your fault. It's not something you did, but we'll talk more on that in just a bit. So today we are in part four of Prayer 101 for Adults. Now, many of us or most of us grew up praying. Many of us were taught prayers as children. And while pretty much everything else about us grew up in many, many aspects, for most of us, our prayers didn't change. Our prayers kind of stayed the same. Maybe the things that we prayed for started changing, but how we prayed and how we looked at prayer kind of stayed the same. And if that's the case, then this is really important for you to understand today because how we pray and why we pray. If your prayers pretty much stayed the same as you grew up, then there's a very, very high probability that your view of God also stayed the same. Because believe it or not, as you view God, so goes your prayers. As you pray, the way you pray will, will reflect how you view and how you see God, right? If you want to know really what you really think about God, how you really feel about God, what your perspective really is on how God thinks, feels, acts, what, what God wants, listen to how you pray, okay? The way you pray will reflect your view, how you see God. But if we stop there and evaluate our own prayers, we got to ask ourselves, what does the way I pray say about my view on God? And as we may discover, and we've talked about this over the last few weeks, a lot of us, our prayers have reduced God to a conscience cleanser, okay? And make us feel better for a little while, okay? Wipe the slate clean, I feel better. Or that we've reduced God to a lifeguard, who will sprint out into the water and rescue us. But as we pray, we oftentimes learn that he rarely sprints out into the water to rescue us the way we want to be rescued, right? We pray those things, and, and that's what we do. And consequently, our prayer has reduced God to informing God of our needs and our wants and our wishes and informing God of our needs and our wants and our wishes for people that we care about. That's why we pray, and that's how we've been taught to pray, right? And that's okay. But the point being is that if you want to know how your view of God, or if you want to understand your view of God, just listen to your prayers. 
If you want to understand how your view of God is, listen to the way you pray. And then all of a sudden, along comes Jesus, right? Jesus shows up, and he shows up to his first century followers. And, and if you've been following along with this series, you know, you know this conversation, so I won't go in all the detail. But basically, Jesus shows up to his followers, and he says, listen, you're not doing it right. You're kind of doing it wrong. He doesn't really call them out, but they want to know, God, what are you, what are you doing that's so different? We've been praying our entire lives, and, and your prayers sound so different than my prayers. What are we doing? And, and God, God's like, Jesus is like, well, you're, you're not really doing it the right way, and I'm going to show you how to do it the right way. You've been doing it the way you've grown up praying your whole life. You've been quoting Psalms and different portions of the Scripture. You've been praying the way that your parents taught you to pray, and I've never called you out on that, I think Jesus would probably tell them. I never told you you were doing it wrong. But now that you've asked what's the difference in the way you pray and the way I pray, I will tell you you've been doing it wrong. (laughs) And Jesus says this. He says, this then is how you should pray. And so it's interesting that a while ago I said that your prayers reflect your view of God, but in the exact same way Jesus' prayers reflected Jesus' view on God. And if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God really likes, listen to Jesus pray or listen to the way that he instructs us to pray. So for the first three episodes of of Prayer 101 for Adults, that's exactly what we did. We discovered that God is not a conscience cleanser. We discovered that God is not a lifeguard who just runs into the water to rescue us or to rescue us from things that we got ourselves into in the first place that we shouldn't have got ourselves into. But we discovered this, first and foremost, the purpose of prayer, and you all know this now, is to align ourselves up with the will of God, to align my will, okay? That's why he says, your kingdom come. He says, you need to pray it this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not your kingdom come, my will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth. Right now, right now, in my world, in my relationships, at my job, in my school, right now, as it is in heaven. And as we pointed out, this kind of language, it rarely shows up in our prayers, right? It often stands in stark contrast to why most of us pray. Most of us don't pray to come to God and surrender. I'm talking about just, when I say that, I'm talking about a blanket Christian statement in the world. Most people don't really come to God to surrender. We come to God to beg for forgiveness. We come to God to beg for forgiveness and to be rescued. Or we come to God to beg for forgiveness or to rescue people that we that we got ourselves into because we didn't surrender in the first place, right? And that's a lot of times what our prayers become. So to pray an adult prayer, we have to have an adult view of God and who got it, not the way we viewed God as a child, not the way we've always thought of God, but a true view of who God is, the way Jesus viewed God. And listen, Jesus came to reveal exactly what that picture looks like. So on one occasion, Jesus is hanging out with the apostles and they're sitting around talking and Jesus is doing what he kind of always did, right? And that is speak, but he's not real clear clear on what he's saying, and so they're listening, and I would imagine, you know, when Bishop Jamie used to come to our church all the time, it would just give me such a headache, because back in the day, he would speak so fast, and with all these analogies and things, and then he would always say, oh, you're not ready for that, and he would skip and go to the next thing, and he'd be like, oh, don't, no, no, you're not, and I was like, oh, you're speaking so fast, I can't keep up with you, right? You're saying things, I just can't understand what you're saying. I think the disciples sometimes probably felt that way with Jesus. He was saying things, and they're like, ah, ah, right? I don't know. And so this was one of those moments. He's not being real clear. And Philip, one of the 12, Philip gets kind of frustrated, and he gets to this point where he just finally blurts it out, and he says this, just show us the Father. (laughs) 
Just show us the Father, okay? Enough with all the analogies, enough with all the parables, and all the hyperbole, and all that stuff that you're saying. Just show us the Father. That's what we want to see, right? That's the question. And you remember how Jesus responded? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? What an answer. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time. And then he says these extraordinarily powerful words. Anyone who has seen me has absolutely seen the Father. Listen, that is powerful. In other words, he's telling Philip, Philip, you are never going to get as close to who the Father is than me. You're never going to see or understand the Father's heart more than me. I'm it. I am the greatest access you have to the Father. If you have seen me, then absolutely you've seen his heart. You've seen his likes. You've seen the things that hurt him, the things that bother him, the things that encourage him, the things that empower him. And Jesus would basically say this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so follow me, right? That's what Jesus often said. But to follow Jesus, listen, they'll discover if you follow Jesus through the Gospels and when you follow Jesus' life, it will require some things in your life to change. A lot of times it requires some things in our life to be given up. Maybe we have to give up some assumptions or perhaps give up some things that we believed our entire life. That was my biggest struggle as I really began to transition uh, into just things that I study and study and, and come to understand and have knowledge. I started thinking about people and family members that, had influenced me and, and grandparents that had influenced me that could they be wrong? Could they? And, and that bothered me more than anything. Could there some, be somebody in my family that influenced me that didn't know it? And listen, they didn't have access to the tools and things that we have access today to look up and to study and, and to learn. But listen, as difficult as, it's, it is, as it is to do, I want you to understand this. And maybe you have never heard this before, but I want to say it one more time. It's human nature to naturally resist things that we just don't understand or we can't control. Now, this explains, and this is so important that you understand the life of Christ because the first century leaders, they resisted Jesus, right? They pushed back on Jesus. In fact, pretty much everybody in the first century misunderstood Jesus. They didn't get him. They had a hard time figuring him out. As a matter of fact, it was Judas that at the very last minute, he actually betrayed Jesus. And not only did Judas betray Jesus, but the other 11 took off running for the hills first chance they got. They disappeared. They went from followers to fleers. As a matter of fact, Peter actually denied even knowing Jesus. <laughs> they thought, and this is really amazing, they thought that they had been with Jesus for three years, and they thought that they knew what God was up to. They thought that they knew what Jesus was up to. They thought that they knew exactly what God was all about, but they actually had some unlearning to do. They had some growing up to do. In fact, Luke tells us that just the day before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and where Jesus is about to have his date with destiny, no, his whole purpose for coming to this earth is about to be fulfilled, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he has this moment, and before he does, he sets down with the guys, and he says, listen, guys, I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to go down, and he tells the disciples, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man is about to be fulfilled. He's telling them face-to-face you're about to see and witness fulfillment of prophecy, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but that would be exciting to me, but it probably wasn't too exciting to them. I don't know. But listen, he goes on, and he says this. He's talking about himself. 
He said, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. He's talking about what's about to happen to him. He's telling the guys what's about to happen. And if they had been listening very carefully and understanding what Jesus was saying, their response, and this is my opinion, 100% my opinion. I have two opinions here, okay? My opinion, 100%, had they been paying attention to what Jesus was saying, their first response should have been, well, then let's not go, right? Let's don't go. You're my, you're my brother, Jesus. I mean, you're my best friend. We've been together. If, if that's what's going to happen to you, then let's don't go. I don't want that to happen. That would have been my first response, okay? Or the second response was, well, then I'm not going with you. If that's what you've got to go do, I don't want to go. I don't want to go, and I don't want to see that. I don't want to be a part of that. I can't handle that. But you know what? They followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were brave? No. Had nothing to do with them being brave. In fact, Luke Luke writes it down, and Luke says this. He says, they followed Jesus not because they, they were brave, but the disciples did not understand any of this. <laughs> it says that its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Jesus is warning them. Now, Jesus' message, it wasn't unintelligible, right? The problem was this, that the disciples had a preconceived messianic notion about what the Messiah was supposed to do, how he was supposed to look like, how he was supposed to live, how he was supposed to act. And when Jesus starts saying these things, it doesn't line up with their framework, their world, what they've grown up all their lives believing. They had assumptions about Jesus, and their assumptions about Jesus had them so locked in that they actually locked him out. They could not hear. They could not see. They thought they already new. And this is understandable, right? Again, if we were raised the way they were raised, they were raised this way. One day, the Messiah is going to come and give us a restored kingdom, right? And their experiences growing up under Roman rule, listen, a limited, mostly incorrect understanding of how the ancient world worked. Their experiences were filled with superstition and all these things. And all of these things that they grew up believing made it next to impossible for them to hear what Jesus was actually saying. It made, made it difficult for them to accept what Jesus was up to in their world, even though it was right in front of them. They thought they already knew, but the truth is they didn't know, right? They thought they knew, but they were wrong. Maybe like me. Maybe like, I'm not going to say you. You can say me. But you're wrong sometimes, right? Maybe that. Imagine this. After three years, they spent three years listening to Jesus all the time. Jesus talked to people, walked with people, healed people, ministered to people. They camped out with Jesus for three years Three years, and all of a sudden, they're still having conversations, arguing over who's going to be first, who's going to be second, who's going to be third, when Jesus sets up his cabinet for his new kingdom, right? That was still an argument that they had. Who was going to be that? They were arguing all the time. As a matter of fact, when they're headed onto Jesus' destiny, these guys, think about this. This blows my mind. They had been hanging out with Jesus three years. So you can imagine the influence he's had on their life, right? And the love he's given to people and honor and healing. I'm just so powerful. They're hanging out with Jesus at the very end of their time with him, and they're passing through on their way to Jerusalem, and they stop off, and there's a Samaritan village, and they try to stay the night in the Samaritan village, and the Samaritans find out they're from Galilee, and they said no. You cannot stay here. You know what the disciples did? They went to Jesus and said, please, 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 please let us call fire down from heaven and burn them up. 
Really? Does that sound like guys who've been listening to everything Jesus is teaching and, and everything that Jesus said? You're like, what? You want to call fire down from heaven and burn them up because they won't host us? They won't let us stay? Listen, these guys were struggling. Even though they were face-to-face with Jesus, they struggled to see Jesus for who he was because of all the preconceived, built things and philosophies and ideologies and theologies that they had stuck in their mind. They still couldn't see it. And they were face-to-face with him. And we think we've got it all together, right? It's another sermon for another day. We'll get there. But listen, not even, I'm going to go further in this for a second. Not only that, after Jesus dies, he dies, he's risen from the grave. They see him raised from the dead. And you know what happens? 20 years go by before they believe in his message. Well, that's not true. Yeah, it absolutely is true. Here's why. They still argued and did not believe that that what he came to do was for everybody. They didn't believe it was for everybody. It was for them. It was their Messiah. It wasn't for everybody. It wasn't until the conversion of Saul. It wasn't until the big church council. It wasn't until about 20 years when they started seeing all these Gentile converts coming into the kingdom. It wasn't till then that these disciples who were face-to-face with Jesus for three years finally went, this is for everybody. This is for everybody. This good news, this gospel of Jesus is for everybody. 20 years after their three years with him. That blows my mind, right? That blows my mind. But they finally embraced the implications of his new command, and it was this, by this love. By this love, Jesus tells them, people will know that you're my follower. But eventually, they did get it, right? We know that. They did get it. They didn't stay kind of off in la la land. They got it. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, okay, if you're a Christian, then this should fill you with a little bit of concern and maybe some, some trepidation. Certainly, a little dose of humility, because it does me. And I thought about this, and I've thought about this, and I've thought about this. But listen, it should knock you off the edge, the theological edge of your smugness or arrogance, because we have to ask ourselves, where do I maybe have it wrong? Where have I maybe missed it? I think that I know God, and I think I know all about Jesus, and I think I, I know the Word, and I know all this. But where have maybe I got it wrong? Where could I be missing it? Where, where, where do I have Jesus wrong? Where do I have my view of Jesus? Where do I have my view of God? Where is it distorted? Because these guys walked with him for three years, and they heard everything he had to say. And still, they struggled 20 years after he was gone to understand his true message. Because their ideology and everything, their framework, it's human nature to resist what you don't understand and what you can't control. What have we missed? What have we misunderstood? Who am I to think that I have it all figured out when the men and women who were face-to-face with him so often didn't understand what he's actually trying to communicate? We're actually better off waking up every single day and approaching every single day and every single relationship and every single decision with our hands and our hearts wide open to the reality that you don't know what you don't know, right? And admitting the fact that there's things that you just don't. Jesus all figured out, right? That we don't have it all together. You're never going to get Jesus all figured out. That's the beauty of it. You're never going to get it figured out. I heard an analogy one time an illustration. I used to use this a lot when I was a youth pastor, and, and there was a, a little boy walking through the streets of Chicago, and, and he was living on streets. He'd been living there for about three years. He was 13 years old, 
and it was snowing. It was really bad, and a police officer pulls up and, and picks the little boy up and says, listen, uh, I need you to go to this house, and he writes down this address. He says, it's not far from here. I need you to get to this house, knock on the door. When the lady answers the door, just look at her and say, John 3.16. The little boy said, okay, okay. And he's in raggedy clothes, bundled up, snowing. So he goes and he finds his house and he knocks on the door and this lady answers the door and he says, John 3.16. She takes him in and she hugs him and she wraps him up. She says, son, I got just the thing for you. She says, have you eaten anything? And he says, no, ma'am. She says, can I fix, I love to cook. Can I fix just the biggest meal for you? He goes, yes, ma'am. So he sits down at the table, and she just pulls out everything. She just pulls out all the stops, and she fixes him this meal, and he's sitting there, and he looks at that piece of paper, and he says, John 3, 16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes me feel good. And then she says, now, son, have you had a bath in a while? Would you like to take a bath? Would you like to clean up? I don't want to force you, but you're welcome to take a bath here. I have a grandson that's about your size, and I have clothes up there. You can have his clothes. He goes, yeah. She goes, I'll start the bath, and I'll give you a warm bath, or you can take a shower. So he goes up there, and when he gets out, he's thinking about it, and he says, John 3.16, I don't understand what it means. Wow, makes me feel good. Feels so good. She says, son, will you stay the night? I live all by myself, and I have just four bedrooms, and I'm just a little old lady in this big old house, and I would love it if you took that bedroom and you just stayed the night. And he did, and the same thing. He said, John 3, 16, I don't understand it, but wow, it makes me feel so good. I have come to the understanding and to the realization that I'm never going to understand Jesus. I'm never going to fully understand Jesus and God. Not that I've been hidden or blinded, but that there's there's so much more to gain and to learn that I'm never satisfied where I'm at. So I stand there with hands open and heart wide open to the reality that I only know what I know and that there's a lot of things that I don't know. And so to borrow from an Old Testament prophet, Micah, he says that, that we should determine every single day, he says this, to just act justly, to love mercy, and then here's a big one. Uh, This is the big virtue that New Testament prophets, they borrowed it. Jesus even highlighted it and taught on it, but he says this, we should walk humbly with our God, according to Micah and the New Testament teachers, and Jesus actually said it too. We are to walk humbly. That's pretty much what the Lord requires of us, and surprise, That's exactly what Jesus did. He walked humbly before God. That's why Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to do my will. I didn't come to this earth to do my will, but I came to do his will. I came to fulfill his will. And throughout the whole New Testament, we're introduced to people, honestly, mostly men, who find themselves in the presence of Jesus, and they don't even recognize him. They don't even recognize who Jesus is. They can't accept him for who he is. They, they, they can't accept him for what he's teaching or for who he's hanging around with. It was just confusing to some of them. In fact, there's one story, and a lot of you remember this story. There was a, a young, wealthy man who came to Jesus one time, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to have Aeonios Zoe, a full, abundant, blessed life, kingdom life? And Jesus says, well, that's, that's pretty easy. If you want to have life, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. But then he gives him a real invitation. He says, then come and follow me. Right? He wasn't saying that like we think in the 21st century what it means to follow Jesus. He was literally saying, come and follow me like the other guys did, like leave and travel with me because I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm on the journey to my final destination, and you're about to see with your own eyes the kingdom of heaven unfold right before. You're about to see me pay for the sins of the world. First row seat. Come follow me. In other words, you want to see life? You want to see 
abundant life. You want to see eternal life. Aeonios, Zoe, come and follow me. But the scriptures teaches us that the wealthy man couldn't see beyond his wealth. In fact, we don't even know the guy's name. He could have been one of the greatest stories ever told. I don't know. We don't even know his name because it wasn't enough. And then there's this guy named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish teacher, right? And we're, we're familiar with him, but he almost missed Jesus too because he couldn't see past his theology and the theology that he was raised with and that he had built his reputation on. And, and it's understandable because it takes enormous humility uh, to, to step back and, and abandon an idea or abandon an agenda or a political persuasion or maybe a perspective that you've built your whole reputation on or your whole public reputation on, the way people see you. The other Pharisees, they couldn't see beyond their prejudice towards certain kinds of people because they thought that Jesus was a fraud because of who he hung out with. Okay, they had these prejudice, these preconceived notions about people, and, and because of who Jesus hung out with, they would say things like this. He can't possibly be from God because look at who he hangs out with, right? I mean, I hear what he's saying. He sounds like a good teacher. He's obviously a great public speaker, but there's no possible way he could be from God. He hangs out with sinners, right? This was real. This was a real prejudice that the religious people struggled with. We, we can't be... We can't follow this guy because if, if God were to send someone to represent him, he wouldn't hang out with those people. I know nobody today would ever say that in the world, right? We would never accuse anybody of not being a godly person because they hang out with those. Maybe some people do. I don't know. And he said, and they say, those people, there's just not a cat. And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes home with Matthew, the tax collector. Dum, dum, dum. Right? There's no category for that. There's no, there's no way for their finite mind to comprehend that Jesus is acting and telling people that he's the son of God, sent down here from God to represent God, and then he's going to Matthew's house, a sinner? They couldn't reconcile his claims to be from God and, and his behavior, right? Because it just didn't make sense. On another occasion, Jesus gets invited from a Pharisee to go to Simon's house, right? And this is a big deal because the disciples, they're watching all of this, right? <laughs> this is just my interpretation of how it's going down. But if I'm hanging out with Jesus, and I'm a disciple, and I see Jesus hanging out with the sinners, I'm like, wow, this is, what, this is what it must be about. We must love these people. And all these religious people hating on, on Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus flips script, and he goes and uses a line that Jesus had previously taught us, that you got to be either hot or cold, but you can't be lukewarm, right? you got to pick a side, Jesus. You can't go hang out with the sinners one day and the religious people the next day, but Jesus was an equal opportunity offender, Okay? He was an equal opportunity offender. And so Jesus goes and he hangs out and he accepts Simon's invitation. He goes to Simon's house and all of a sudden this lady shows up. We don't know exactly what kind of lady she is. We do know that they tell us that she was a sinner. Now, back in those days, that could be because she did something really silly, like something she wore or ate or she walked on a Sunday, a Sabbath day. You know, it could be something that silly, or it could be a serious offense. We don't know exactly why, but she was labeled a sinner, right? And so Jesus is at the house with Simon, and all of a sudden, this woman who has been branded a sinner, she walks in, and she comes in, and she just begins to wash Jesus' feet. She takes on the form of a servant, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears. Wow. This was unacceptable. 
So anyway, the host is sitting there across the table from the Son of God. Think about this. This religious person is sitting across the table from the actual manifested Son of God. And his prejudiced, his preconceived, ill-conceived assumptions about God, about who God favors, blinds him to who is actually visiting right there in his home. He's so concerned. He's so concerned with his prejudice or these preconceived notions, what's going on with this woman and how he sees it. He's so caught up in that that he can't even recognize who's sitting across the table from him. And when it's clear that Jesus wasn't offended by this woman's proximity or her touch, Simon thought to himself, which is always a terrible idea if you're in the presence of God. You don't think to yourself anything. He thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, translated, I know for a fact how this works, and anything that doesn't line up with my way of seeing things just doesn't line up. And there's no way that a prophet from God would see this woman the way that I see this woman. A sinner. He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So Jesus does his thing, and he smiles, and then he tells Simon and everybody at the table, he gives them this parable, and he tells them this story. And at the end of the parable, Essentially, what he says is this. Simon, this woman sees what you cannot see, okay? She sees what you refuse to see. You can't see past your flawed frame of reference, your self-righteousness. Simon, your pride has locked you in, and it has locked me out. But this woman, she sees what you cannot see. Why? Because she recognizes her own failure. She recognizes her own limitations. She recognizes her sin, and she recognizes me. And then maybe just to stir the pot, I don't know what Jesus' intentions were exactly, but I know that Jesus, they were pure, they were holy, but it did stir the pot, I'm sure. He looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. After all that, he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the response of Simon and the other guests, they're they're baffled by this. They're just baffled because it really underscores their inability to see who Jesus really is. It it underscores their inability to see Jesus uh, as a representation of God. And listen, they ask a question. And this is the question that I hope everybody asks in their lifetime. Maybe it's a question that you need to ask. They ask this question. Who is this who even forgives sins? What a great question. Who is this? Who is this? They didn't know, but listen, they didn't recognize him, but she did. And and the question was this. Who is this? Who is this? We're so quick to judge, especially when we read stories like this. We're so quick to judge these narrow-minded, ancient characters uh, that we're reading about, but we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be because we often do the exact same things, right? We get into our preconceived, our boxes, our framework, and we can't see out of that. We get stuck in our corner of the world, and we can't see past that. They didn't recognize who was right in front of them. Listen, to be honest, oftentimes I've been in that spot where I didn't. That was that used to be my biggest fear. I used to preach all the time a message, especially when I was younger and coming and preaching in youth ministry and and all this. I'd preach things like, you know, when Jesus passes by, uh, and the, the religious people were in the temple praying for the Messiah, and Jesus passes by, and they didn't even see him. And that was always my greatest fear is that I would be stuck one day and that I'd be begging God in my religious framework to do something, and God shows up, and I don't even recognize him, right? And so I, 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 did, I spent years of ministry blinded by my own per- personal righteous approach to faith. 
And my personal righteous approach to faith was something like this. It was fidelity, morality, honesty, and rigid generosity. And that was kind of my framework. And that was how I tried to run my life and build my life. And and that was important. And if I could do all that and behave well, then I was good. And and if I could do that, then, then we were good. And it didn't matter. I had no obligation to you. Okay? You weren't my responsibility. It was about me, me and him, me and him, me and him. And I built this whole religious framework on that. And looking back, it amazes me how blind I was to my own self-righteousness, how it was all me, me, me. And if you've known me very long at all, I hope that you've noticed, and especially in the past five, six, seven years, that I have tried my hardest to shift my focus off of me onto people. It has become people, 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 people. That's the business. I was so blinded. Even in the New Testament, I was blinded, and I would read the New Testament and totally miss Jesus. I would read what he's doing, but I totally missed what he was doing. I, because in my preconceived notions, my ideologies and my theologies, I already knew, and so I made what he was doing fit what I already knew, even though that's not what he was doing. I made whatever he said fit what I already knew because it made sense. And then I find out later, that's not what he said. But it was tough. It was a tough struggle. And I still find myself facing that and acknowledging that every single day. What I had done is I had built my own temple. Okay? I had built a temple, and I think we do this all the time. I had built a temple, and I had walls in my temple, and I had a strong foundation. It was a thick foundation. My walls were impenetrable, and this is my temple, and my temple was strong, sturdy. It was a structure. Occasionally, I would rearrange the furniture, but it was a temple. And in my temple, this is the way you do faith. This is the way you do church. This is the way you do God. This is how God sees you. This is the way it works. This is how you get forgiven. This is the way it goes, point in case. Faith, faith, faith. I've got it all together. This is my temple. But the problem was I started noticing that I had no tolerance for the temple next to me. And I had no tolerance for the temple in front of me because the temple next to me, their faith wasn't like my faith. The way they saw forgiveness wasn't the way I saw for forgiveness. Their temple was wrong. My temple was right. And I had no tolerance for other people's temples, and that was the problem. That had built a temple. And temples aren't made to move. They're not made to change. They're built. They're built strong and sturdy. And so you know what? The last... 10, 12, 15 years. It really started about 2009 with a really, really serious conversation I had that I started deconstructing my temple. And man, I just knocked it all down. And I knocked my whole temple down. By the time I started the exchange church, we we planted this church, my temple was pretty much gone. And I really wanted to, to start the church with no temple. Because here's the thing. Though my views have changed and everything in my temple changed, I got rid of my temple, deconstructed my temple. What I don't want to do now is build another temple based on the current views and realities that I now have, right? I don't want another solid foundation based on what I think I know now because I don't want to be stuck, right? I don't want to be locked into a temple. I want a tabernacle. Tabernacles are better than temples, right? Tabernacles are better than temples. The Jewish people had a tabernacle, right? The Hebrew people had a tabernacle. Everywhere they went, they went from town to town, and and they traveled, and everywhere they went, they went with a tabernacle. And a tabernacle required work. It required required work. You know, they had to repair it. They had to travel with it, and they had to fix it. But a tabernacle was not stone. It was a tent. And God would come in and he would accommodate the people to their capacity in the tabernacle, right? That's what I want. I want to be a tabernacle, not a temple, okay? 
I want to be a tabernacle that's mobile, that, that represents the fact that my God is mobile, and that my God can go anywhere and do anything. I want my temple, my tabernacle to be repaired. When I get out of line, when there's things and there's tears in my theologies and ideologies and my view of how I see God and how I see Jesus, I want to fix it. I want to repair it. Then I want to pack it up and I want to move it along and I want to start again. And God is going to move into my, my tabernacle every time, and he's going to accommodate me to my capacity to see him. I, I got really off my notes. Yeah, y'all got me going for a second. So today I want to suggest a short, a short prayer to add to your current prayer routine. We've been talking the last four weeks. And listen, if you haven't, caught up to all four of these messages, please, please, please go back and listen. You can go on our Facebook page, our podcast, or our app. Listen to these three messages, Prayer 101 for Adults, because it's changed the way I pray. It has changed me so much. But this, this prayer is not original with me, and it's, uh, it's uh, the psalmist had a virgin, version of this prayer. The Old Testament prophets had a version of this prayer, and Bart also had a version of this prayer. And honestly, Bart's version of this prayer is uh, better than, I think, any of the other versions because he had a firsthand encounter with Jesus. Jesus is on his final leg of his journey, his date with destiny. He's about to lay his life down as a representation of sin to the world. And he's about to restore us and bring us back, reconcile us to the Father. This is really important. It's the whole reason he came to this earth. And Jesus is on his way, and he's headed to Jerusalem, and he stops off at Jericho. It's about 18 miles east of Jerusalem. And as he's passing through the city, he's going by, and Luke tells us this story, and we believe the accuracy of Luke because Luke interviewed firsthand uh, eyewitnesses to all these accounts of Jesus. Luke, the, the gospel of Luke, is they, they believe one of the most accurate because of all the people he interviewed uh, to write down this gospel. And Luke tells us this. He says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting along the roadside. Now, Luke wasn't the only one to be there and hear or write this story. Mark also tells this story in his gospel. And Mark tells us the name of this guy, and the name is, is Bartimaeus, or Bart. And uh, listen, Bartimaeus, when he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what's going on? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This was his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, his big moment right here. And so he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those that led the way, they rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. And I love what happens next. you got to remember, Jesus is on his way to die. He is on his way to the biggest moment in the history of mankind. And Bart calls out his name, and Luke writes, but Jesus stopped. Wow. Jesus is on his way. I mean, can you imagine what's going through his head and all the things that are on his mind and brain? He's going through this town, and, and Bartimaeus calls out, and Jesus stopped. And he ordered that the man be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, which I think is kind of funny, but it's intentional. But Jesus says to Bartimaeus, he says, what do you want me to do for you? which is a strange question for a miracle worker to ask a blind man, right? What is it, Bartimaeus, that you would like me to do for you? So what follows, what Bartimaeus responds is a prayer. It's a prayer. It's sweet. It's short. It's to the point. And when you read this, when you read this passage, most people don't read this as a prayer because it doesn't just look like a prayer. It doesn't sound like a prayer, but it's a prayer because we understand that we're taught also that prayers are making our requests known to God, right? And so Bartimaeus has asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? And Bartimaeus prays, and he's talking to God, and this is exactly what he says. He says, Lord, I want 
to see. Man, all week long, I've struggled with this. I've struggled every time I think about this and read this. It just gets me. This has been my prayer this week, every day. I've prayed this so many times, and man, it just gets me. It's so powerful. Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to see. So the question that I asked myself this week and today and that I'm asking is, do you want to see? Because there's a lot of people that don't. There's a lot of people that don't. But do you want to see? Do you want to see now what you currently cannot see, even if it requires you letting go? Even if it requires you letting go some preconceived notions or ideologies or theology, even if it means admitting that maybe you were wrong, do you want to be right even if it doesn't feel right? Do you want to see? Jesus told him this. He said, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. And then I love this. I love this. Bartimaeus did what those who could not see beyond their reputation, beyond their wealth, beyond their theology, beyond their ideology. He did immediately what so many people in the New Testament cannot do and what so many people today still will not do. And the text says this, and he followed Jesus. He followed he, were, he not only was able to see clearly for the first time, but he followed Jesus, literally followed him. He saw what we would long to be able to go back and see, and that, that is the events that unfolded that would later become the salvation of this world. Bart was there. He saw it. He says, Lord, I want to see. This is my prayer. It's so clarifying. Seeing is clarifying. But the problem is the reason that a lot of us resist is because seeing also can be terrifying. Sometimes it requires something of us that we're not comfortable with, compassion that we're not ready to give, an apology that we're not ready to give. Seeing sometimes requires forgiveness that we're just not there yet. It requires to look at someone and, and to accept someone that we're not ready to accept, to look past who they are. But the, alternate, the alternative is to live and walk in the dark. Worse, if you're not willing to see, a lot of times we miss Jesus. Jesus is, is here and he's at work all around us. He's in us. He's among us. He's doing things. And a lot of times we're so blinded by our own ideologies that we just can't see him. Jesus, Jesus reminds us, well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. But a lot of times when we can't see Jesus, we misinterpret Jesus. And it, or, or we use Jesus, and that's kind of what Judas did. But the purpose of our prayer, again, as we've said throughout this entire series, is to align our hearts, to align our will with the will of God, with the will of our Father. But to align our will with His will, it becomes so much easier when we can see clearly. Right? When you can see as He sees, it's so much easier to get your will lined up with His will. Lord, I want to see. We should pray this. This should be our prayer. Heavenly Father, let the things that bring you joy bring me joy. I want to see the way you see. I want to see what you see. And then let the things that break your heart break my heart. Allow me to see the world the way you see it. Allow me to hurt, to be broken for the things that hurt you, that break you. When people are hurting, I want to see the way you see that so that I can respond. Give me the courage to respond appropriately. Lord, help me to see. There's three things I think that in particular that I want to make you aware of that really hold us back from this, and it's going to be quick. And Jay, if you want to come up, 
There's three things. Number one, our past. Number two, our personality. Number three, our prejudice, right? These three things in particular have the tendency to color or distort our ability to interpret the world around us. Our past, for example. Basically, the sum of all of our experiences, our upbringings, our religion, our joys, our sorrows, our privileges, or even our pain. Or our personalities, number two. The way that we're wired, our temperaments, our Enneagram numbers, which is our personality. Just the way that we are, it becomes a filter, and it makes it difficult sometimes to see. And then the third thing is our prejudices, the things that we prefer. And some people don't even like that word prejudice because oftentimes it's connected to our past and how we're treated and how we saw other people treated. But acknowledging our prejudice, the things that we just naturally like or don't like, it's imperative for Jesus followers because, listen, we can't love well until we see clearly. Say that again. We can't love well till we see clearly. So I challenge you, I challenge you to to start, you know, we over the last three, four weeks, we've been talking about prayer, and Jesus taught us that we're to go and get into a room and a quiet place and shut the door. And he, he told us that we're to pray to him as Father. We're to acknowledge who we're praying to. But there's these prayers that I want to tack on because they're, they're prayers, I think, that should be those praying without ceasing moments, you know, Prayers that just kind of flow out of our mouth often that remind us of our need to see clearly. It's a Bartimaeus prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to see. Help me to see. Help me to see as you see. Heavenly Father, enable me to see beyond my past, beyond my personality, and certainly beyond my prejudice. Because, again, it's human nature to resist things that we can't control or don't understand. We hang on to them. But listen, if we, if we hear these words and we grab a hold of these words, Jesus kind of made a promise to us. It's really kind of an awesome promise that he tacks on because Jesus says this. and He says, if you'll hold to my teachings... If you'll grab a hold of the things that I'm teaching you, the things that I'm saying, if you'll cling to my teaching even when it conflicts with some of the ways you were raised, if you'll hang on to my teachings even when it when it goes against some of your own prejudices and pasts and your personality, if you'll hang on to my teachings, if you'll embrace them, then listen, he says, you are really my followers. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free to see me, I think Jesus would say to you today, as I really am. When you hang on to my teachings, when you cling to my teachings, the truth will set you free to see who God really is. When you hang on to the things that I taught you, not Moses, not Joshua, not Jeremiah. I'm not knocking any of those boys. They had some good stuff. But Jesus says, you hang on to the stuff that I taught you. Man, you will see clearly. You will see clearly the way that we see the world, the way that your father sees the world. And it's not as bad as you think. And then there's even more. And he says, because listen, If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. You want to see clearly? Follow me. That's what he says. Follow me. Cling to my teachings. I want to challenge you with this question, a couple questions before we go. One, can you think of a moment of an 
inaccurate or unhealthy view of something or someone that you inherited maybe from your family, from the past? Listen, I should have told you to answer that question before I asked the question. The answer was yes. That way you wouldn't feel so weird when I asked the question. But the answer is yes. You probably can. We all can, I think, right? doesn't mean anything bad, but there's, there's things that we kind of grew up and, and it was unhealthy. But listen, now here's the second question of that and the more important question. Were you able to see clearly? Or what enabled you to see clearly? Because I hope you've already dealt with a lot of that because I have a lot of things that maybe I had inherited or grabbed hold of, I dealt with. But what was it that helped me see clearly? What was it that I was taught that kind of this metamorphosis that kind of helped shift me into a change of thinking, a paradigm shift? Question number two, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. So in your opinion, what do you think the relationship is between a pure heart and seeing clearly? Because in my opinion, I think those things work really, really close together. Lord, I want to see you. I want to see. Every morning, I just dare you to wake up and let the first thing you say is, Lord, I want to see. I dare you. Double dog dare you. Lord, I want to see. I just want to see. Thy will be done. I want to see thy will, not my will. My will can wait. Thy will be done. I want to pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. God, we want to see. We want to see as you see so that we will do as you do in those situations, so that we'll say the things that you say in those situations. So God, Heavenly Father, please empower us to see beyond our past, beyond our prejudice, and even beyond the way we were wired in our personalities. And specifically, give us eyes to see people around us the way that you see them. Jesus' name.